Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Jesus takes the time to heal his enemy. Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus do that? And even as I ask that, you already know the answer, don't you? That's what love does. The best gardeners are the ones that learn from their gardens. They learn the best time to plant, the best kind of fertilizer to use, the best seeds to plant in their garden. If a person is willing, they can learn a lot in the garden. Wherever you are, whatever you've done in your life, whatever has happened, and by the way, I've probably got you beat, but whatever it is, Jesus really loves you. Hello and welcome to this week's message in our summer series entitled Growing in the Garden. We've spent a number of weeks this summer looking at passages in the Bible that are connected to some type of garden setting. Today we're back in the Garden of Gethsemane where there are two very important truths for us to learn. If you were with us last week, you know that we uh, spent a significant amount of time in Matthew's account of what was going on in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there was a real focus in Matthew's account on on the humanity of Jesus Christ, that he was 100% man and why that was important for us to understand. But it is equally important to understand that he was also and is also God. The Garden of Gethsemane was a place of anguish for our Savior, but it's also a place where He reveals to us who He really is and what He really thinks of us. Now here's Pastor Clay. This is up in my study on Saturday night, and Cindy can tell you, my study, on, especially on Saturday night, as I'm getting ready for the next day, I don't have any lights on. I, just, I have a little light on. Uh, at my desk, a little lamp, not, not real bright, and then the computer screen. I have a pretty good size computer screen, and it's on, and that's really all the light that I need. I can see it, and it's just, uh, it's, it's nice ambiance. It's <laughs> a $25 word I'll throw out there. Uh, so I, I like it, and, and it's, it's conducive because a lot of times uh, I'll pray in and out as I'm looking at my sermon, and I'll pray some. So I'll, I'll go over to the couch in a little while, and I'll get on my knees, and I'll pray over there, and then I'll come back, and, and I'll look at the text some. So, so, you know, it's just kind of a dark with a little bit of light situation, and, and, and that's fine. That's all that I, I need. And on my desk, I have uh, some reading glasses. Not these glasses. These glasses are designed to let me see far and near if I, if I need to. Fortunately, my far vision is still quite remarkable for my age. But these glasses let me do both. But I have these reading glasses that are just for... Okay, come on, y'all. I'm trying to, trying to get y'all into this now. They're just for reading. And so uh, they were sitting on my desk, and I wasn't using them because I'm looking at the computer screen. My Bible's open beside me. I'm looking at my computer screen, and somehow I messed, did something, and I knocked the glasses off, and they fell to the ground. And I, and I just reached down underneath my, my chair, underneath the desk, picked them back up, put them back on the table, and then went on with whatever I was doing, looking at, working on, whatever. And then I don't know how, how long, you know, five minutes, eight minutes, some period of time later, uh, I, I'm looking at the scripture, and so I, I reach for my reading glasses, and I put them on, and everything is just like, whoo, wacky, blurry, you know, whoa, just crazy. And I'm like, what the world? What the world? And, I, you know, I take, them, I take them off, and I'm looking at the text again, and I put them back on, blurry, and I take them off, and it's blurry, and I put, what, what, what in the world is going on? And, and here's what I thought. How could the glasses falling to the ground make them go out of focus? How could that just happen? How could they, the glasses fall to the ground, they just go out of focus? I'm really, that's seriously what I'm thinking. And then somehow, in the midst of taking them on, I, I realized I stuck my finger through one of the openings, and there was a lens missing. 
a lens had fallen out and was still on the ground. And I'm trying, so one lens is in and one's out. And it's, I felt kind of silly. It's important to be able to see clearly, isn't it? Today, it's important to see clearly some things that are going on in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you are here last week, you say, well, the Garden of Gethsemane, we were, we were in that garden last week in this series, Growing in the Garden. Yes, we were. But we're going back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, three of the gospel writers, by the way, record events in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, last week we looked at Matthew's. This week we're going to John uh, chapter 18. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can open there. And uh, before we partake of these elements today as a church body, as, as believers in Jesus Christ, before we do that, I, I want it to, to take us again to that garden because it was the garden that, that from there, he, he's on his way, Right? It's in the garden where he's arrested. It's in the garden where he's carried off uh, to appear before uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, and the, and the false accusations and the, and the illegal trial, and, and then on to uh, Pilate and, uh, and all that kind of stuff that, that went on, right? So the, being here at the garden one more time today, then leading into these elements, I felt was something that was very important for us because there are some things that we still need to see in the garden. I want to share a couple of ideas with you from the garden this morning. Uh, John uh, chapter 18, was I right about that? Yeah, John chapter 18, and I'll read the text again as we go today because we want to make sure we have enough time to to partake of these elements. I'm going to share two ideas with you, and we're going to start with this idea this morning. Here's the first one we're going with. And we've said this, the other thing we've been saying, in the garden we grow in our understanding that, and today it looks like this. In the garden, we grow in our understanding that Jesus really is God. Now, if, you, if you've grown up in church or you're, if you've been in Christian circles, you understand that that's, that's a theological concept that's been thrown around for, for a couple thousand years. And it's something that, that if you've been immersed in it for a long time, you almost don't think about it. But I want us to back up and I want us to think about this reality today, that Jesus really is God. Let me read it uh, to you, at least the first six verses. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort... And officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Father, in that name, the name of Jesus, that matchless name, that name that is above all names, uh, I just ask today that you would continue to impress upon me, every person in this room, every person who perhaps will, will view or listen to this message, Lord God, I pray that you would impress upon them the reality of who you are. And what that means for our lives. I think I said this last week, Lord God, I'll say it again this week. In the garden, we are walking on holy ground. 
it is a place uh, that we should approach with reverence and awe and with great appreciation. For it was the, uh, the beginning of the end, that walk toward the cross. And so I pray that you would speak to each of us today in, in, in and through your messenger boy. I'm very honored to get to do this. Uh, but Father, also through these elements in a little while as we partake of them, those of us who are following Christ as our Savior, I pray that, that this day would be a fresh awareness of who you are and what you have done for us. I thank you for each person in this room, and I pray for them right now, not only for, for your effect through this message and through these elements that we'll partake of, but God, just for their lives overall, for whatever all is going on in every woman's life in this place, every man's life in this place, every child's life in this place. This is a sin-cursed world, and there seems like there's stuff going on all the time. Lord God, and a lot of it is hard. And so I pray that you would meet each one of them right where they are. It, it could be a school situation, a, a family situation, a financial situation, a work situation, a health situation. There's, there's a lot of stuff, Lord. This is a sin-cursed world, and, and we're living under the conditions of that. But I'm grateful that you can bring victory in this life and into eternity. So, have your way, open the hearts and minds, the ears of every person who will hear this message. And we ask it in the matchless name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. 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 In the garden, we grow in our understanding that Jesus really is God. Now, if you're with us last week, you know that we uh, spent a significant amount of time in Matthew's account of what was going on in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there was a real focus in Matthew's account on, on the humanity of, of Jesus Christ, that he was 100% uh, man. And we talked about uh, the importance of that, why that matters for our lives to understand that he was truly a man, not just didn't look like one or wasn't just a spirit, that he was a, a man with physical blood, bone, flesh, body, and why that was important for us to understand. But it is equally important to understand that he was also and is also God. That it is equally important to understand and to see his deity. That, and I said this last week, I'll repeat it. I know that mathematically that doesn't add up, okay? To say that Jesus was 100% God, I mean 100% man, and that he was 100% God, I understand that mathematically that doesn't add up. But theologically, it's very important. And, let me just speak for all of us when I say, it's okay to admit that we don't understand everything about God. It's okay to admit that there are some things in the mystery of the Godhead that are beyond our understanding. Listen, I don't understand how a brown cow can eat green grass and make white milk. So, so it should come as no surprise that our finite minds would be in some way limited by definition and would not be able to fully grasp an infinite God. In fact, in fact, it, by definition, if we could fathom all the mystery of God, if we could understand everything about who he is and what he does and when he does it and why he does it and what his motivation is and, and, and what his characteristics and traits, if we knew, if we could understand everything about God, then by definition, he would not be infinite, would he? So it's okay. As a matter of fact, I would say it's actually good for us to be able to say, you know what? I don't know. 
I don't understand that. I don't exactly understand how that works. I think it's good for us to come to that realization because it reminds us of our finiteness, our limitedness, and of God's infiniteness, his unlimitedness. So here we are in the garden. We focused a lot last week on Peter, James, and John, and they're sleeping and not paying attention. We saw that. We saw the struggle Jesus had uh, with this, this cup, with what he was preparing to, to bear upon him. And so Jesus is there in the garden, and, and, and all of a sudden this, this, uh, this big mob, began. that's what it was. It was a mob begins to approach, right? With Judas, I assume, at the, at the head. He certainly was there. We know that. There's Pharisees, there's religious leaders, there's Roman soldiers, uh, there, there's whoever all there is, this, this cohort, this mob that begins to approach. And what I want you to understand is, I want you to see his deity in this, because they did not catch Jesus off guard, they did not catch him unaware, they did not, oh, oh wow, I, did, I, didn't, I didn't see this coming. To, to read again that first part of verse 4, it says, Jesus therefore knowing all the things, all the things, that were coming upon him. So listen to me. Judas and all the people who were co-conspirators in all of this, they are, again, I may not fully understand all this, but they are perfectly responsible for the decisions that they made. But make no mistake, God was fully in control in that garden that night. God was fully in control and he knew exactly what was going on. And so as this mob approaches Jesus... He asks them a question that he already knows the answer to, but he asks them anyway. And it's very interesting what transpires here. Let me read it again, verse 4, this time in its entirety. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? He asked. He already knows the answer. He, he, he's, he already has said earlier that Judas is going to betray him. He knows everything in his deity. He knows everything that's going on. He already knows this. But he steps forward. He steps between his disciples. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Steps between his disciples and the mob. And he says, who are you looking for? Jesus, the Nazarene. And when Jesus responds, something remarkable happens. In, uh, in verse uh, 5, it's Jesus responds, I am he. I am he. Now, uh, it's, it's not necessarily up there on, on the screen, but I mentioned this last week in regards to another word. But in the New American Standard Translation, some translations don't even bother to italicize it. But in the New American Standard Translation, the word he is italicized. If you happen to have one of those translations, you may see that. The word he is italicized. And if you remember last week that I said, whenever you see a word italicized in the text, in the, in the, uh, the, the passage... It means that that particular word was not in the original Greek text. It was not in the original manuscripts, and it was not in the, in the handwritten manuscripts that were carried on. That the word he was later inserted by translators, in this case into English, to make, uh, to make the sentence more clearly understood. And listen to me. In most cases, that's fine and good, and it helps for them to do that when... When, when it's obvious that it belongs there. But in this case, it is my opinion that they would have been better off to have left it alone based on what happens. Because Jesus' literal, literal response was simply, I am. I am. Who are you looking for? Jesus the Nazarene. I am. In Greek, it is ego eimi. Who are you looking for? Jesus the Nazarene. I am. And when Jesus spoke those words... The text says 
that the, 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 the mob fell back and fell to the ground at, the, at that. And John, by the way, in verse 6, very specifically says that it was at that phrase, ego eimi, that the mob fell back and fell to the ground almost as if they were shoved back by the very words that Jesus said. What a strange, strange thing to happen. Why would, the, why would that happen? I mean, they're the mob. They're holding all the cards. They've got the most people. They've got weapons. They've got the, the jurisdiction to arrest Jesus. Why would they fall backwards and fall to the ground at the simple response, I am? It seems like a strange thing to us until we remember that I am is God's personal name for himself. Do you remember the story in Exodus chapter 3? In Exodus chapter 3, uh, God comes to Moses in the burning bush. Moses has been out there for 40 years, wandering around the wilderness with his family, raising sheep. And God appears to him in the burning bush, and he says, Moses, I'm sending you down to Egypt to tell Pharaoh to let my people go and to tell the people of Israel that I've heard their cries and that I'm setting them free. Do you remember that story in Exodus chapter 3? And, and Moses is a little hesitant. He's a little not sure about that, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But he, he finally says, he says, all right, and I'll paraphrase a little he says all right uh, God I'm, I'm going down to Egypt to tell the, the the children of Israel to tell the sons of Israel to that God is setting them free that the God of their fathers that's what he says that the God of their fathers is setting them free but God what happens if they ask me his name and in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14 this is God's response to Moses question God said to Moses I am who I am and he said thus You shall say to the sons of Israel, I am, has sent me to you. It is is the self-existing one. He's not the God who who was but is no more. He's not the God who will be but is not yet. He is the I am. He is the self-existing God. And Jesus uses that very name in response when they said, we're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, I am. And it literally knocks them to the ground when he says that. I'm telling you, Jesus really is God. He really is God. And their response to just the mere mention of that name is evidence of, what, of, of his display, of his deity there in the garden. You know, it's interesting that uh, Jesus uses this same phrase when he's talking to the, the religious leaders in John chapter 8. They're, you know, they're trying to nail him and all this stuff. And, and he says something about Abraham uh, would have looked forward, your father Abraham would have looked forward to this day. And, and they said, you're not even 40 years old. How, you know, how, how, how can you know about your father Abraham? And Jesus says... The same phrase in John chapter 8 and verse 58. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And you know what happens in verse 59? In verse 59 of John chapter 8, it says that the religious leaders immediately picked up stones to stone Jesus. Why? Because they understood. He was claiming divinity in that moment. He was saying, I'm God. That's how I know Abraham. I'm God. And they took up stones and were going to attempt to to stone him. Listen, Jesus really is God. And this, this, all these events, as I said, the people and the decisions that they made, they are responsible for in their free will, and yet God is above it all. He is, he is 
He is going before it all, and he is fully in control. First uh, Peter, uh, maybe you've read this passage before, First Peter chapter 1. But with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In other words, the, the, the lamb, the precious lamb without spot or blemish was already known in, 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 the, in the Godhead that he was going to come and that he was going to pay the price that you and I uh, might obtain eternal life as a result of it. He really is God. One of the reasons that uh, we give and go and support missionaries, one of the reasons we do stuff like that, is because, by and large, uh, the world, most of the world spends its time either trying to pretend or act like God is not there or trying to appease God or their idea of God. They may have some mixed up ideas or some different ideas about who is God or what is God or what God does, but the vast majority of the world spends the majority of their time or a significant amount of their time trying to please and appease uh, their idea of God. Believe me, I've seen it all over the world uh, in, in all kinds of rituals and, and sacrifices and all different kinds that they're trying to do. All of them trying to appease this God in the hopes, in the hope that someday, somehow, it would merit them uh, the the opportunity to go to heaven. And the reason that we support missionaries, the reason we ask you to give and to go, the reason we, we do all that we do is because the world needs to understand that they don't need to hope. We don't need to hope that we can be good enough to get into heaven. Hope came from heaven. Do you understand? Hope came from heaven. And he made it possible. He was good enough. Perfect, in fact. Okay, all right, Jesus is God, and I need to know that because, because for one thing, all of us are sinners, and we have no possibility of, of redeeming ourselves, no possibility of paying for our own sins, and so it took a perfect sacrifice, and since no man is perfect, it took the God-man to come and to make the perfect sacrifice so that we could have a relationship with him, know him, have our sins forgiven, and be granted access to heaven. That's one reason we need to know that Jesus is God, because he was sufficient, he was, he was enough. And the other reason that, that it's probably important to remember that Jesus is God is, is for this life here and now. Yes, for eternity someday, but for this life here and now. Knowing that, that somebody's on your side that is enough. I, I want to read you a, just a quick story, a real short story. Really, it's not even a story. It's just a phrase, really. Uh, from the tale of the tardy ox cart, uh, Helen Malicote mentions this, says this. Says, I was, I was regretting the past. Now, listen to me. Your life now, where you are, all that's going on, whatever's happening, not happening, not going good, going fantastic, thinking about running for governor, whatever the case is. I was regretting the past and fearing the future. Suddenly, my Lord was speaking. My name is I Am. He paused. I waited. He continued. When you live in the past with its mistakes and regrets, it is hard. I am not there. My name is not I was. When you live in the future with its problems and fears, it is hard. I am not there. My name is not I will be. When you live in the moment, it's not hard. I am here. My name is I am. For all the stuff that comes into your life, 
There is a God who cares about you and loves you and is there for you and it has the power to work in situations even when we can't understand what he's doing. Jesus really is God. Here's the second observation I want us to see in the garden. It looks like this. In the garden, we grow in our understanding that Jesus really loves us. Now again, this is another one of those things that we talk about a lot in church circles But to stop, to slow down, to pause, and to think for a minute that Jesus really loves me. I want to read it to you in verse 7 through 11. Therefore he again asked them, who do you seek? After they picked themselves up off the ground. Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. He had said that just one chapter back, back in chapter 17 in Jesus' high priestly prayer. Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? Jesus really loves us. You know, love is a... uh, Love is a word that is, that is tossed around a lot in our culture today, right? I mean, it is. Love has come to mean basically anything and everything. And honestly, everyone believes that they have the right to define love for themselves. By the way, for the record, I don't disagree with that if there is no God. If there is no God, then certainly I can define love and whatever else I want. In any way that I want. It can mean whatever I want. It can take whatever shape or form that I want. If, if there is no God, then, then, then I get to make that call. But if there is a God, which the empirical evidence overwhelmingly supports, when honestly looked at, if there is a God, and since that God, if he exists, has self-identified as love... 1 John 4, 8, since love is at least one or part of the attributes of who God is, if he has revealed himself as love, then it seems to me both reasonable and rational to assume that only God then has the, the right or the jurisdiction to determine or to define what love is. That just seems rational. That seems reasonable to me. If he is love, he's more than that, of course, but if he is love, then he is the one to define it, it would seem. Some of you know that the Greeks uh, were very particular in their language. The, the New Testament was written in Greek originally. It was, it was the English of, of its day. It was the common language that you could go almost anywhere in the world, someone could speak Greek. That's part of the reason God waited until that time period to send the Savior, so that the message would have a way to get out uh, truly worldwide. The, the Greeks had uh, at least three words to define what type of love they were talking about. In English, it's just, every place it's just basically interpreted or defined as, as just, it's just love. The Greeks had at least three different words to define it, and some of you are familiar with these words. Uh, eros, uh, which is the, the physical, the sensual, the sexual uh, aspect of, of love. Philos, the, the fond, the the kind heart, the brotherly affection, the, the, 
you know, going to stand shoulder to shoulder with you, uh, very fu- that kind of love. And then agape, which is the uh, sacrificial other person first love. The Greeks used those three terms in the, in the New Testament. We find the New, all three of them in the New Testament. And they have particular aspects or meanings uh, to what we simply write as love. You probably also know, or some of you know, that every place in Scripture where God's love is mentioned, it is the word agape. It is sacrificial. It is other, others first. That that is God's uh, ultimate or true definition of love. That doesn't mean eros, the, the, the sexual and physical aspect of love, that that's wrong between a man and a woman in marriage. No, it is not. doesn't mean that, philo- no, it just means that, that when referring to God's love, sacrificial, others first, is always what is used to define God's kind of love. You understand me? You with me? And we see that love, is what I want to say before we go to the Lord's Supper, we see that love displayed here in the garden. And we see it in, in at least three different ways. We see it, first off, in the protecting of his followers. Jesus, we see it as Jesus is protecting his followers. We already read it, but you see in the text where when the, when, as the mob comes in, Jesus steps forward. He steps between his disciples and, and the mob. Even in the midst of all that was going on and all that was going on, Jesus steps between him. He says, if I'm the one you're looking for, leave these alone and take me. Even in the midst of one disciple betraying him and the other disciples about to abandon him, Jesus is still putting them first. Why? Because that's what love does. That's who he is. That's what he does. God really loves us. Now, let me say this. That is not to say that God always protects from physical harm. Uh, it, would be, it would be ludicrous to say that. Throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, and throughout history, it's not hard to find men and women who have suffered physically, even many put to death, for their belief in Jesus Christ. It's not proper to say that God always intervenes for protection from physical harm. There, there are almost every day someone around the world is killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. So it, 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 that's, this is not to say that God always protects his followers. When he does not, when there's physical harm, when there's, someone's even put to death for their faith in Jesus Christ, all I can say to you in the mystery of the Godhead is there are purposes in the pain, there's purposes in the suffering, and it will reap, it will uh, result in a reward for the person suffering that far outweighs and far outlasts anything that they would experience here on this earth. Whether it's a direct attack because of a result of, of standing up for Jesus Christ, whether it's just the fact of living in the sin that, that whatever, however, if when we endure it for, for Christ's sake, what God has waiting for us far outweighs and outlasts what we have to endure down here. But these men, these guys, although they didn't always get it right, and God had to kind of nudge them along at times, but these guys were the guys that were going to first start the, the, the dispersion of this message all over the world. These were the guys that were the eyewitnesses of his life. They were the eyewitnesses of his miracles. They were the eyewitnesses of his teachings. And they were about to be the eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And so they were going to have a remarkable story to tell. And it was a story that had to be told. Why? Romans chapter 10 For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. 
For the same Lord is Lord of all. Today's translation doesn't matter what color your skin is, what country you're from, what social background, how much money's in your bank account. The same Lord is Lord of all. Abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Watch this. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Which simply means a proclaimer. Somebody that goes and tells them. Not just the guy that stands up here. Uh, someone that would go out and proclaim it. How will they preach unless they are, say it, sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are feet of those who bring good news of good things. The, these disciples, these guys, these bumbling, stumbling not get it right a lot of times. Disciples were the ones who were going to carry this message out. And so Jesus steps with He protects his disciples. And, he, and listen, I can say this to you unequivocally. When, when God has further plans for you, God has purposes and plans, he will protect you from whatever he needs to in your life. So we see it in, in protecting of his disciples. But we also see it in the healing of his enemy. In, uh, I think it's in verse 10. Uh, yeah, Simon Peter then having a sword, th- th- uh, drew it. Struck the high priest's slave, cut off his ear. Slave's name was Malchus. Uh, we talked about this extensively or a little more last week. We know that, that Peter had been asleep. And so it's, it's, it's quite fair to say that Peter doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't pull his sword and, and strike in, in defense of the, of the Lord. It, it's in fear of his life. He, he just wakes up. It's not out of... Out of uh, his stance is out of confusion that he wakes up and this is going on and he draws out his sword and he swings at Malchus, assumingly trying to take his head off and he manages to cut off his ear. And, and Jesus does something remarkable. Again, in the midst of all that was going on, Jesus bends down, and Luke tells us this specifically, bends down and apparently picks up the severed ear and places it back on Malchus's head. He heals, he miraculously heals Malchus in that in that garden scene, in the midst of all that's going on, in the midst of all this, con- everything, Jesus takes the time to, to heal his enemy. Why would Jesus do that? Malchus is part of the, 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 the mob that has come to arrest him. Malchus is, is the enemy as far as the mob is concerned. Why would Jesus do that? And even as I ask that, you already know the answer, don't you? Because that's what love does. That's what love does. And I just take the opportunity to remind all of us that all of us were at one time enemies of God. Uh, Romans chapter 5, just to remind you. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. How? Through him. For if while we were what? Enemies. If while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, having come to him in relationship with him, we shall be saved by his life, by the fact that he conquered death. It's, it's insurance that we also shall conquer death. We were his enemies as well, but that's what God does. That's what love is. You understand what I'm saying to you? Jesus really loves us. And we see it in, in a third way. Uh, we see Jesus' love for us in the fact that Jesus is completing his mission. In his humanity... Listen to me. In his humanity, he was, asked if, he was asking if it were possible for this cup to pass from him. In his divinity, he knew what the cup was. And in his love, he is absolutely determined to fully drink the cup that, was, that the Father was bringing to him for the redemption 
of you and me. He is, he is bound and determined to complete his mission. And so as a result of this, and again, we saw it last week, uh, we see it a little bit here, but, but Peter pulls out a sword, swipes off his ear, and uh, in, in Matthew's account, Jesus tells him, put his sword Put it away, and then if you were here last week, you may remember that, that it says this in Matthew. Jesus said to Peter, Jesus saying to Peter, he said, Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? What, what is the matter with you, Peter? How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? Now, the number varies, or has varied throughout time militarily as I understand it, but, but if I understand it correctly, at the time of Christ, uh, a Roman legion consisted of approximately 6,000 men. That would equate to, if that is the reference that Jesus is using, that means 72,000 angels are standing by. Now, considering that it only took two angels to completely obliterate Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm pretty sure 72,000 will get the job done. But it's a request he never makes. It's a command he never gives. Why? Love. Love. He's going to listen, I don't know. Can I just say if I got time to say I'm going to say it anyway. Listen, can you imagine? I don't know if angels are privy to every single conversation that goes on on earth or, or not. I think they were in this one. But can you imagine when, when Jesus says this? Can you imagine up in heaven, them, the angels all sitting around, and Jesus says, hey, Peter, put your sword away. You, you're not, I mean, do you not think I can ask my father and he'll immediately put more than 12 legions, 72,000 angels, if he's, that's, 72,000 angels at my disposal, it's just my baptized imagination, in my baptized imagination, I want to think that the angels are just, they're looking down, they're hearing Jesus, and they look at the Father, looking back at Jesus, they're looking at the Father, they're armored up, they got their hands on the sword, and they are ready to open a can on anybody that puts a hand on the Son of God, I mean, I just, I, I just, but it's, a, but it's an order Jesus never gives. It's a request he never makes, and it's because of love. I want you to understand, wherever you are, whatever you've done in your life, whatever has happened, and by the way, I've probably got you beat, but whatever it is, Jesus really loves you. He loves us. John, let me give you a few references to remind you of this. John chapter 10, the Father loves me because I sacrificed my life, so I I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also take it up again for this is what my Father has commanded. Listen, I, I know we can't get our mind fully around this. I know that the Father sent the Son. I know that the, the Son was going to accomplish what His Father sent Him to do. But if I'm understanding this right, Jesus had to die in order for your sins and my sins to be paid for, but Jesus didn't have to die. Do you know what I'm saying? In other words, He made a choice. He chose to do this. For you and for me. Matthew chapter 20. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served. But to serve and to give his life a ransom. For many. Uh, John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John chapter 15. Greater love has no one than this. That one lay down his life for his friends. 1 John chapter 4. This is real love. Not that we loved God. But that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice. To take away our sins. Jesus really loves us. In the, in, in the book, A Man Called Peter, it's a biography on the life of Peter Marshall, a, a chaplain for the United States Senate for many years, many years ago. His wife, uh, Catherine Marshall, tells the story of an incident that occurred uh, when Peter Marshall was just a young man. He was, he was ministering in 
a, a town in England called uh, Bamberg, I think was the name of it, about 17 miles from the Scottish border. And as he was, he was going from one village, uh, one, you know, village town one night, uh, headed, headed home, uh, as, as Marshall described it, it was, it was inky black, just eerily black. You, you literally could not see the hand in front of your face. And as he was making his way through the moorlands, uh, he, he's, he's going along, and as he's going along, he suddenly hears a voice in, in a bit of uh, urgency, Peter! And Peter Marshall stops, and he says, yes, no response. And so he begins to walk again, and the voice comes again, this time with greater urgency, Peter! And Peter st- stops very suddenly. As he stops, he kind of stumbles, and he falls to his knees. And he falls to his knees, he tries to catch himself with his hands. And as, as, he, do- as he tries to catch himself with his hands, his hands don't hit anything. And he, and he carefully feels around and he, in, a, in a semicircle and he realizes and he finds out, uh, obviously, uh, in, in the moment that he is standing right at the precipice of an old stone quarry. And that if he'd have taken one more step, he almost certainly would have plummeted to his death. As you can imagine, that had a profound effect on Peter Marshall for the rest of his life because, because it brought home in a very realistic way that God really loves him. And God must really have a profound purpose for his life. And I can stand here and say that to every one of you in the midst of whatever age you are, whatever you think you have done or haven't done, I can honestly say to you, God has great purposes and plans for your life. Not as, not as man defines them, what would be famous or glamorous, maybe so for some people, but that's not the point. It's, it's about what God would purpose for you and your life and the impact that you could have for the kingdom. This past uh, Wednesday, I guess it was, we were serving... Uh, coffee and water and stuff to the parents of incoming freshmen here at the school. Thank you for all of you that, that give, make it financially possible to, to purchase that kind of stuff, and those of you that were able to come and see. But while we were there, uh, Pam Parker had the opportunity to engage in a conversation with a gentleman there who, as it turns out, was a universalist. Now, a universalist basically believes everybody gets in, that you can believe whatever you want or even not want, but, but you're going to get in. And so Pam was engaging and telling him a little bit about cross-culture church, and the gentleman asked Pam a question, right? Pam, I'm not trying to get this, put words in your mouth, but this is what you told me. Asked Pam a question. He says, do you have to believe in God to go to your church? Because you don't have to, to be a universalist. <laughs> he said, do you have to believe in God to go to uh, your church? And Pam said her first thought was, well, yeah, you, you got to believe in God. But then she thought, knowing, knowing the mission of cross-culture church and our desire uh, to reach uh, people, she said, well, well, no, you don't, you don't have to believe in God to attend cross-culture church. And that's absolutely true. Because we want anyone and everyone to come in and hear what we believe is the truth about life, about death, and about eternity. So no, you don't have to believe in God to attend cross-culture church. But listen to me, you do have to believe in God to go to heaven. And, and not just believe in Him. You must place your faith in His finished work on the cross. That is the only way. That's the only way. Maybe you've read this. Jesus said this, John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes in the Father but through me. Now the world would say that there are many paths, many ways uh, to God and you could choose your, whichever path you want or not want. It doesn't matter. You, you, you choose whichever one that, that fits best for you. And can I say this to you? That message is well received in, in today's culture, right? Because, because it, it, it sounds... It sounds very uh, open-minded. Can I say this to you? Just God is not an open-minded God. He's not. Acts chapter 4, I think verse 12. And there is salvation and no one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's it. Now, you don't have to believe that. A lot, most of the world doesn't, by the way. In the, in the totality of the population, the majority of the world doesn't believe that. But as I've said many times in my life, I'm going with the guy that rose from the dead. That's, that's the guy I'm putting my stock in. Phil Roberts tells a story uh, when he was a, a boy. He was with his dad, who was a pastor. Uh, we went to the post office one morning on a Monday morning after uh, Phil Roberts' dad had preached the day before on the, on the exclusivity of Christ. And uh, they, they ran, had a, began a conversation, had a, ran into a woman who apparently had heard the message the day before, or heard about the message, I don't know whatever the case was, but she began to explain to Phil Roberts' dad, to, to the pastor, said, Pastor, you know, I believe that getting to heaven is, is kind of like the way we got to the post office today. You came one way, I came another way. You came down one road, I came down another road, but we both ended up at the post office. Phil Roberts said his dad thought for just a split second and then said, Madam, there's only one problem with that logic. I don't want to spend eternity at the post office. Jesus said he's the only way. Have you found that way? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you committed your life to him and know him in a real and personal way? Jesus really is God and Jesus really loves us. Those two truths shine through the darkness of that night in the garden. Last week, we saw Jesus' humanity there in the garden. But as Pastor Clay showed us in today's message, Jesus' divinity is on full display. Also on display is His amazing love for all of us. That love would carry Jesus all the way to the cross so that any person could be redeemed if they would put their trust in Jesus. How about you? Have you experienced the love of Jesus? We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their life feel disconnected with the type of life and faith they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting? If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I Get get it from Clay Stevens. They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice real. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where they will find what they're searching for. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculture.church. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. I want to lead you to the cross. 
Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.